All right, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians, uh, which we've been going through today. Um, I was thinking as I was preparing this, does anybody remember, uh, raise your hand if you remember the Old Country Buffet. Okay, the old country buffet, OCB. Yeah, OCB and I had some good times as a young kid, right? Because uh, right now, I mean, to be honest, like, I don't even want to do the buffet thing anymore. I feel like buffets, as you get a little bit older, kind of become a ripoff because you can't really put that much food away. It destroys your whole day or even week, depending on what's going on. Ask Troy Cervantes, who ate 50 chicken nuggets last night. Uh, you just can't do, yeah. <laughs> honor where honors do here at River City Church. Uh, so not there. Um, but we, uh, you know, you can't really put the food away anymore. But I remember as a kid, like, I just loved the concept of Old Country Buffet because uh, you could just build, like, this crazy plate of food of just what you like, right? Like, uh, okay, I've got, like, some spaghetti over here and an egg roll and fried chicken and then unlimited quantities of ice cream. And it was like, that is what I want. Like, I can avoid what I don't want. I can build this plate of food for myself. And the reason I was thinking about this is as I was reading about uh, Corinth in preparation for this message, uh, that word buffet came up over and over again, but it was in reference to the idolatry in Corinth. That in Corinth, there was a a plethora, a a buffet, a large selection of different idols from from whom people could uh, try and worship or, or attribute their source of strength There were idols everywhere, and they weren't idols in the sense that we a lot of time talk about idols because idols for us are often like hidden or things that we start to worship instead of God. They were uh, legitimate images set up to worship, uh, believing that they were either themselves a God or the symbol of a God. It was everywhere. It was definitional in what this town of Corinth was. And so Paul has been speaking into the lives of these people in 1 Corinthians to try and instruct them on how to exercise their freedom in Christ in a culture in which idol worship and looking away from God to other sources of pleasure and joy, sufficiency and provision was the norm. Idolatry in Corinth was everywhere. And so we're coming to the end of this section uh, where the Corinthians have asked this question. Remember, back in chapter 8, they asked this question of Paul about uh, food that had been sacrificed to idols. They're asking about their liberty. In particular, they're asking Paul for clarity on this issue of, of can we eat meat that's been sacrificed to idols. Now, when we went through chapter 8 a few weeks ago, we kind of worked through the surface-level question that the Corinthians were asking. And Paul explained to them that, yes, in reality, like, there's nothing that's changed about this meat. Idols aren't, in reality, God. And so this meat, in and of itself, isn't tainted. But he offers caution to them as to how to process through it. And the reason that he offered that caution to him is because idol worship was such a risk and was such a prevalent thing in the culture in which they existed. Um, Idol worship was so ingrained in the society in Corinth that it really was how you would connect with other people. Um, So if you were going to throw a a baby shower or a bridal shower or a wedding uh, rehearsal for someone, what you would do is you would invite those people to go to the altar of an idol and to consume a meal at this table in front of of this idol. So it would be like, all right, uh, Justin and Simeon are having a baby, and so we're going to send out an invitation. We're going to say, hey, everyone, we're really excited for 
Simeon and Jess's baby to come. And so we would like to uh, uh, invite you to the temple of Serapis to have uh, some, some country fried steak. And it's going to be beautiful. And we're going to sit there in front of the idol of Serapis and we're going to worship him together and we're going to eat this meal. And literally, we have, that's a silly example, but we have in antiquity uh, actual invitations that read like that. Come celebrate with us today and come hang out with us here. We're going to eat in front of this idol. Um, N.T. Wright uh, is quoted as saying that actually the temples in Corinth were the restaurants of the day. These were the gathering spaces. These were where you met other people. And so what we see as we work through chapters 8, 9, and then 10 that we come to today is that really the question that the Corinthians were asking wasn't just this surface-level question about meat, right? It wasn't just this surface-level question about meat. Instead, the Corinthians were making an argument. (coughs) The Corinthians were arguing that because that they were Christians, because they were secured in the blood of Christ, because they'd been baptized into Jesus, because they had taken part in communion, uh, that they'd taken part in the body of Christ, in the blood of Christ for their sins, that they were making an argument to Paul that this offered them security that gave them license to not just still eat meat sacrificed to idols, but to actually go eat in the temple. A lot of times my kids ask me questions like this, right? They're like, Daddy, can I go outside? And as a, a parent, you're like, yes, you can go outside. But as a good parent, you go, why? And they're like, to climb on the roof and get down sticks? No, right? Shut that down. The Corinthians' question about meat sacrificed to idols is a similar question. On the surface, it seems like an innocent question. It's a question that Paul is going to answer, and he answers it. You know, if you look back at 8, 1 through 4, he says, yeah, we, we know idols are fake. We know that meat sacrificed to idols is not really defiled in any way. And Paul talks about the fact that he has taken part in this meat, and that, yes, the body is made for food, and food really has no consequence. But we get to the core of it when we look down what he says to them in, in 8, verse 10, where he says, for if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, See that right there? Paul knows that the question is not really just about whether or not they eat meat sacrificed to idols, but wanting to step into temple and eat this food at the altar of another god to be with people who are worshiping that god and to sit with them and consume that meal without saying anything just so they can be in this social circle. Paul says, if anyone sees you have knowledge eating in the idol's temple, will he not be encouraged in it? Will you not... Make this brother encouraged in his sin. Tell him that it's right. Offer this fellow person in your community, instead of the life-giving blood of Jesus, a false hope. And really usher them into destruction. So that's kind of the the background as we head into this. He makes this weaker brother argument. (coughs) And so what Paul's going to do in chapter 10 is he's really going to sum up this entire section of 8 through 10, and that's why we had to do so much background work to get into it, is to understand why Paul is going to make this argument. What Paul is going to do in 10 is he's going to make this argument to the Corinthians that they can't simply use the status before God that they've been given. They can't simply claim, well, we have the sacraments, we have the blood and the wine. They can't simply claim we've been baptized and therefore say we can do whatever we want. Okay, so 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and that's where we'll spend the rest of our time today. Paul says this, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, 
that our fathers were all under the cloud, and they all passed through the sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might, might not desire evil as they did. So what Paul here is going to do is he's going to use the people of Israel and their history with God as an example of a group of people who are in a secured covenant with God, and yet their actions, in particular their idolatry related to food, leads to idol worship. And so he says, look, think back on the people of Israel. And he's going to compare these two things that the Corinthians are finding security in, their baptism and communion. He's going to compare these. He says, uh, wasn't all of Israel baptized into Moses? Didn't they have their own passing through the water? Now, he's not literally saying that they were baptized into Moses' name or claiming that it was a similar function of baptism, but he's using this as kind of an illustration of them, saying, didn't the people of Israel also pass through the water? He wants them to think about the parting of the Red Seas, how this was a symbol for the people of Israel of God saving them out of captivity in the same way that baptism is a symbol of God saving you and I out of captivity from sin, that passing through the water, that going in and then emerging out a new people, being reminded of the covenant that God had made to them. He said, didn't the people of Israel have a baptism too? Weren't they also baptized? He says, didn't they have a covenant meal with God? He says, didn't, wasn't God giving them spiritual food with which to sustain them when manna rained from heaven, when water came from a rock for God to provide for them? He says, do you think, Corinthians, that you are any different as God's covenant people than Israel has been as God's covenant people? Didn't they have a baptism? Didn't they have their own communion? Didn't they have a provision from Christ himself? And he attributes that, that manna from heaven and that water as coming from Christ, saying that rock was Christ that this flowed out of. Then verse 5 he says, But nevertheless, most of them, with most of them, God wasn't pleased. And so they were overthrown in the wilderness. He says, These things took place as an example to you. Uh, he likens these examples to the elements of the Corinthians, and he says that even though the people of Israel had a legitimate covenant with God, even though God had provided with them in, in a type of baptism, a symbol of their coming out of their enslavement, even though God had provided for them with spiritual food indicating the constant care of his covenant, as communion is supposed to indicate to us that God is constantly providing for us. He says, even though that these things were true, that did not mean that the actions of idol worship didn't have grave consequences for the people of Israel. And so he reminds them that it was only a few. It was only a handful who didn't die in that wilderness because of their sin. That because of the sin of Israel, and he'll point out some specific ones here in a moment, that God didn't let all of those people get ushered into that final promised land. Now, I don't think what this passage is saying is those people didn't still exist in God's eternal covenant and weren't saved on the merit of the blood of Christ in the future. I think instead what he's saying is that they lost out on significant earthly blessing because of their choice to walk away from God and to worship other things. 
I think they were protected in the covenant. I think the covenant was secured for the people of Israel. And I think that the covenant for you and I, if we trust in Jesus, is secure. This isn't a message on on being careful that you don't lose your salvation. This isn't a message uh, uh, to say, I want to scare you so that you don't sin and I want you to fear God. This is a message to say that what Paul is trying to say to the Corinthians here is that our sin has consequence. It has consequence both personally as it brings pain on us and we step outside of God's path and and his perfect plan to provide for our joy. And it has consequence in our ability to fulfill our mission in the world. So so this is the argument that Paul sets up. that The Israelites had a, a baptism, they had a communion of sorts, and yet their sin still found them out. And he's going to give three examples in the next section starting at verse 7. He says, do not become idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink, and then they rose up to play. Uh, this is a reference to Exodus 32, 6, where uh, the people of Israel, uh, you remember the story, uh, Moses has gone up into the mountain, and he's gone up to, to commune with God, to receive instruction from God, to get the Ten Commandments from God, and the people, uh, they, get, they get just impatient, right? Just normal normal thing. These people are like, it's been a few hours that Moses is talking to God. Let's move on, right? Like, yeah, he's been up there a bit. I'm tired. And so what do they do? They go to Aaron. Aaron's like, uh, uh, I'm the priest. I'm supposed to, supposed to help these people and not, and not get them to worship away from God. So let's do this. Let, let's, build, let's build an idol. And I, I think this idol uh, was more of an idol trying to, trying to say, hey, let's, let's focus our worship so we can still worship God. And so they collect all the gold around and they make this golden calf and then they sit down and they do what? They have a meal in front of this golden calf. And then they get up, and I love, uh, this is the ESV that we have on the screen, but if you read the CSB, it says, and then they got up to party, right? And that's not party like nice, fancy party. That's like college party, okay? They partied. They leaned into their sin. And so Paul doesn't even mention the circumstance that it wasn't even idle, but he says, this is just like when those people sat down to eat, and then they got up to party. And that's what you're asking to do, Corinthians. So, so avoid idolatry. Uh, remember the consequences of that, that in that day after they made that golden calf, that 3,000 men were killed to make an account for this idolatry. That not just that, that a plague came on all the people of Israel. This people of Israel that just had seen plagues come down on Egypt to free them. Now a plague comes on them to remind them. So we shouldn't be like that. Uh, Verse 8 says, We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put God to the test as some of them did. We're destroyed by serpents. Uh, These are references to Numbers 25, uh, 1 through 5, uh, where these people sit down, and they sit down in the presence of the God of the Moabites, and then after this meal together, and for the presence of the God of the Moabites, all the people get up, and they have sex with one another. They they intermarry, and it's just this giant, debauched thing as Israel walks away from God again to the God of another people, and violates God's commandment to them, and And so God, in his judgment, strikes down 23 of them, 23,000 of them. It says, now these things happen, verse 11, 
He gives these examples. He said, now, now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the age has come. And then he splits to a really encouraging verse here. Just this. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Paul says, watch out. He says, Flee the sexual immorality. Flee this idol worship that goes along beside it. Um, it's interesting in, in the Bible, as, as Gordon Fee points out, that, that any time that there are these, uh, uh, these mentions of idol worship and food together in the New Testament, the sexual immorality is always tied in with it. That these things always tend to go together. He says, avoid these things. Don't grumble about these things like some of them did. Instead, look at your Bible and see it as an example of how God wants to point you to where you can find joy and health, not run into things that will harm you. Then he gives us encouragement. He says, hey, there's no temptation that's overtaking you. It's not common to man. And I really enjoy that line because I think uh, that it really points out one of the, the ways that I think uh, the devil, who the Bible calls the deceiver, I think it's one of the ways that, that he tricks us, is that when we're tempted, he tells us that we're unique. He tells us that our situation, our circumstance, is different. And so where this may be sin in, in this direction, for us it's just probably the wisest course. Where this may be sexual immorality, we're going to call it a gray area, because for us it's different. We're married in our hearts. Where he says, hey, I'm commanding you to live in this way. You're like, oh, that's too much for me right now. It's different for me. There's no temptations overtaking you that isn't common. And that goes both ways. That also, like, every single one of us is fighting sin. There are no perfect people here at River City. There are no perfect pastors or leaders. Um, Myself, very much included. Every single person that stands in front of you here is broken and sinful in need of Jesus and on a road towards sanctification to becoming more like Christ. And no temptation that's come at you is anything that's other than common. We all battle our old selves. All of us want to sin as the world does in a variety of ways. But he says in that, be encouraged that God has always given you the ability to flee temptation. He's always given you the ability to flee temptation. This happens in two ways. That if you are a believer, if you have trusted in Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit. You have the very power of God that is a part of you, that is indwelling you, that is giving you the ability to seek him out to change your desires so that you will want different things from what you want. And the Bible seems to indicate that you can, you can lean in or out of that. You can, either, you can either seek out the filling of the Spirit and, and lean into the control of the Spirit in your life, or you can grieve the Spirit and push against where you know He's convicting and pushing on you. So no temptation is overtaking you other than what's common. You have the ability to flee this temptation. And then I think this is the most encouraging part. He says, God will always provide an out. That God will always provide a way of escape for you. Literally, always provide a way of escape for you. 
Now, are there moments when it seems like every choice is painful? Yes. Are there moments where the choice that is either the least sinful or the only choice that is not sin that's in front of you, where it will feel like that's the hardest choice that causes you the most pain? Yeah. It will be hard. It will be painful. But it's what we're called to. We are called to a life not conformed to what is convenient to us. We are called to a life not like our old life in which we just try and seek our own pleasure and do what's best for us in the moment. We are instead called to a life where we are conformed into the image of Christ. And sometimes that conforming hurts. I mean, think about it for the Corinthians. Like, this isn't, this question of like, can we go to the temple and eat with the idol? You probably read that and you're like, <laughs> stupid question, stupid Corinthians, right? I tell, like when I read this book, I'll be like, stupid Corinthians, like, this guy's sleeping with his mother-in-law, like, what do stupid Corinthians? Like, you read this, you're like, well, duh. Like, this is a no-brainer sermon with a no, uh, no application for me. I'm not trying to go to Serapis' temple. Like, for the Corinthians, they're asking, like, can I see my friends at Applebee's? Terrible choice. Anyone would avoid Applebee's, okay? Like, but they're asking, like, can I, can I hang out with my friends at Founders? Can you imagine what a hard call to say, no, you can't be there. You can't go. And Paul's not saying that to be mean or to limit their joy. Paul says, hey, you can't go because at the core of what you're asking is you're asking to step outside of who you are as a believer. Pick it up in 14. He says, therefore, my beloved, my beloved, like this is, this is a dad who cares about his family. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Says, I, I speak as, as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for all, we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants at the altar? What do I imply then? That the food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake at the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Paul's encouragement to the Corinthians, just as it was when he talked about sexual morality, and he says this twice in the book, flee. Two times in this book, he says, this is destructive, run. And this is a word for run that's like, drop everything because you're in danger. Just run from this idolatry. Run from it. 
Paul's point is this. He says, this argument that, that, that you have freedom to go eat in this temple, to be in the presence of this worship, to take part in this worship because you have security in communion. This argument doesn't check out. He says, because what communion is, is communion is a radical statement of our connection to God. Uh, he says participation is the word he uses here. He says participation. He says, don't we, when we take communion, don't we participate in the body and blood of Jesus? He's saying, aren't we, when we take communion, aren't we reminding ourselves that because of what Jesus has done, we have become one with him? He says, aren't you participating in it? Aren't you becoming a piece of this? He says, isn't this the same as Israel? He said, when they sat down uh, at their altar and, and, a, and a, a lamb or a goat was sacrificed, weren't they participating in this sacrifice? Weren't they united themselves saying, I am where that goat stands. This thing is dying in my place. He says, weren't they participants in that sacrifice? Aren't we too participants with Christ that we are one with him? The gospel, the truth of who Jesus is, the truth of the Son of God who died on a cross to pay for your sin, the truth of the Son of God who rose from the dead, the truth of that Son of God who sits at the right hand of heaven and says, hey, if you put your faith, your trust, your reliance in me, you're one with me. When you trust and believe in Jesus in that way, when you trust that he is the one who can make provision for you to be righteous enough to stand before God, when you trust that he has given you a new life, when you trust that you now have the same status as Jesus before God, that he looks at you and he sees you as a son or daughter, he says communion is a representation of that. The beauty of what only the gospel can do. The beauty of this unity that it brings us into before Jesus. So Paul says this isn't an idol of whether or not, uh, or this isn't an issue of whether or not idols are real. He says it in chapter 8 and he says it here. He's saying, am I implying that the issue is the food? Am I implying that the idols have power? No. He says they, they don't have power. The idols aren't real, he said, but there's power there. He says, there is power there. He says, I imply that when pagans sacrifice in this way, they are offering it to demons, to something real. He's saying there's, there's real power in this sacrifice. These people see a real thing in this because there is a real thing behind it and is an evil thing. And so his question is this. He says, if in this meal these people are uniting themselves with demons, can you as a believer go be there and do it too? And the obvious answer is no. And so he asks them this question. He says, are you going to risk it? He says, are you going to provoke the Lord to jealousy? That's where jealousy is throughout Scripture. It's one of the primary ways that we see God's response to our sin. That God is not an angry God. God is not a vengeful God. God is not a God that just wants to put his foot down on our pleasure. God's a jealous God. God's a God who values you beyond what you could ever imagine. So much so that he sent his son to die to redeem you. And so if you are a follower of Jesus and you seek to go worship something other than him, he's jealous for you because you are his. He's bought you with the blood 
of Jesus. He has redeemed you to make you his own. Like, you're his kid. The other day in the car, like yesterday, actually, the kids were playing, and they were like, uh, Michael, what's your dad's name? And like, my dad's name's Sam. And I was joking, but I go, that's not your dad's name. And Michael goes, hey, Lucy, can we change my dad's name to Brad? And she goes, yeah. He goes, sorry, Daddy. And it, I mean, that, that was a funny moment, but there's something beautiful there. That he knows that, like, in the world, there's nothing more, more important to me than that I'm his dad. Because I would be jealous for him if he went away, if he was someone else's. This is the argument that Paul makes for the Corinthians, that God is jealous for them. And so you, church, you have great security in Christ. Your salvation, you are held in the hand of Jesus, and nothing can remove you from that place. You have an inseparable love between you and God if you are a follower of Jesus, if you have trusted in him. That should bring great comfort to you but it should also awaken you to the grave consequence of living in contrary to that truth. That to push against it, to walk against it, to seek to worship other things, even though they might not be as obvious as that idol in that shrine. That to do that, to lean into our fear instead of this joyful awareness that God has provided for us to flee from our sin, embrace joy in him we live in a world where there really is evil where there really are demonic forces and we're wise to exercise caution in the things that we take part in for the majority here at river city church man we want you to be in culture we want you to be around non-believers. We want you to be everywhere you can be, that you might carry out the message of Jesus. You know, it's really intentional. We try and keep our calendar here at River City Church like as empty as possible. Like, we, we want you to try and reserve this time on Sunday to come and to be encouraged with the truth of the Word of God, to hear the gospel, to worship collectively. We'd love it if you connect uh, with a smaller group through city groups so that you can get plugged in there and have that life-on-life -life thing. But then the rest of your week, man, we really want you with people that don't know Jesus because you're the light of the world. And so I don't want any of this to sound like, man... I want you to, like, don't, don't be going to bars. Like, see how those movie theaters, you know what happens there. That's not that. But there will be places that you say, I just can't do this thing. I can't take part in this. Because to take part in this would be to worship a God that is not my God. And in doing that, you offer a gospel witness to those that you speak to in that way. You stay near to this God who is jealous for you who has purchased you with his blood, who has united you in his body. Let's pray in thanks, and we will share this meal together. God, keep us close to you because we are prone to wander. God, I pray now as we, we do celebrate the work of Christ in the sacrament of communion, the Lord's Supper, God, this, 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 this cracker and this wine that are meaningless in their form take on for us great meaning in that they remind us that we have been united 
with the body of Christ. This cup reminds us of the price of that unity that we find in you. And so God, I pray that, that we would worship you as we partake in this, that this would be a reminder to us of your provision for us. In your name we pray, amen.